Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. I'm sorry there was no podcast last week. I was knocked out by the side effects of my jab, but I'm now fine and I'd urge everyone to have their jab as soon as they're offered one. It is literally our only way out of this effing pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Douglas Board, a leadership and career coach and senior research fellow at the former Cass Business School. Douglas worked as a senior civil servant and then as a headhunter before embarking on a portfolio career as a writer, coach and board member. He has been chair of the Refugee Council, treasurer of the Diana Princess of Wales Memorial Fund and is currently on the Queen's Council selection panel. He's written two research books on leadership and two satirical novels, MBA and Time of Lies. His new book, Elites, asks, can you rise to the top without losing your soul? Welcome to Work Interrupted. I'm thrilled to join you, Christina. So how is lockdown three going for you? Well, the thing is, some of us are really lucky and we still feel utterly miserable. And I think I'm probably <laughs> in that place. I'm, I'm in, a, in a small flat, but with lovely views from the south side, from the Millwall side, looking at Canary Wharf, the largest collection of empty skyscrapers. And I'm missing the Thames Clipper just... In my eye line, it used to just go up and down, and it comes back Monday, and it's just for months it's not been there. It's been like the river's been dead. Mm. And, but hopefully, we're all coming back to life. Hopefully. I've been out of London at my partner's for a year, so I've had a completely different life to the one... Well, I mean, obviously, everybody's had uh, a different life, or most people have had a very, very different life to the one they've normally had. But I've been gazing out at sheep for a year, and... Uh, normally I live in my flat which is on a very very busy high street I look out of my window I see uh, straight into the top deck of a double-decker bus Um, Mm. I have uh, police sirens fire engines um, you know all of huge amounts of traffic noise and bustle and I think on the rare occasions I've been back to London it has really struck me that it feels like a ghost town and I think it does when you're in the middle of nowhere you know the middle of nowhere is the middle of nowhere but when you're somewhere that's usually full of bustle I think I think the poignancy of it when I look at that at Canary Wharf and and I've been reminded so for this is for a year now and I am most reminded of you know back in happier days younger days uh, my wife, Trish, and I, we, we got to travel some of the great national parks in America. And I'm, I don't know if you've ever been to Mesa Verde. It's in the southwestern United States. I know that's not very helpful, but where they have a large number of superb national parks. Mm. But Mesa Verde, which I think means green table. Um, yes, I Spanish. think we have been there, actually. So it's got, like Table Mountain in South Africa, it, it's got a flat-topped mountains with green growing on the top Mm. but just underneath the lip of the mountain you look across at this civilization that built whole cities in the rock we don't we went there yes yes you know what i'm talking about and and so you look at the most elaborate artifacts buildings living spaces um of a civilization a cliff dwelling civilization just there and the guidebooks and things tell you that as far as we can tell, 
at a certain point, for a reason that isn't very clear, the inhabitants all just abandoned mm. them. And that's when I look at Canary Wharf, I think, mm. ooh, it's all very well turning everything into flats, but who's going to want to live in and buy quite that many flats that all look like glass matchboxes? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that that was the we went a couple. Of, when was it? It was probably twenty eighteen, actually, that that we went uh, in that previous Neolithic era, um, and we had a camper van, and that was when I discovered that my uh, prejudices against camper vans were entirely justified, and I absolutely hated <laughs> it. <laughs> but there we are. Well, I, I wanted to ask you. So you have, like many of us, a portfolio life of writing, board work coaching and and lots of other things did the social parts of it move seamlessly online or did you lose a lot of work when the pandemic struck I lost quite a bit of work um the coaching the delivery of coaching um continued pretty smoothly shockingly <laughs> shockingly smoothly in a way for someone I kind of you know, I, I still believe quite a lot that there's something in the face-to-face -face mm. that isn't captured there. Um, but actually, as long as the person being coached had something they really wanted to tackle, um, and if the broadband was good enough, that you know that could, uh, you know that that stuff could work. But you know, they're absolutely. I think businesses. My business. My clientele comes partly from businesses paying and partly from individuals paying, mm. and certainly businesses. Um, have cut down on a lot of um, expenditure, but hopefully, as government keeps telling us, it's about to all bounce back. Mm. Yeah, well, I wouldn't believe a word they say if I were you, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm sure you have enough of a well-honed business antennae to to be able to sense these things yeah. for yourself. What do you think was lost in coaching going online? I think I have to. I think a coach has to be a lot sharper um, to notice when someone might be edging towards the verge of tears, mm. but holding it back very professionally. Mm. I think if you're sitting with them, there's, there's more body language clues. I don't know, other bits of the body kind of stiffen up perhaps and become a bit less mobile or something something triggers you to look very closely at the face and then you notice. Um, but it, it, I, I, it struck me because I was doing the coaching session a couple of weeks ago uh, when fortunately, you know, I did notice. But I think it's a lot harder. Mm. Well, you wrote your first novel was a blistering satire on business schools called MBA on a rather second-rate business school. It has to be said, and but you are, um, I think, a, 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 visit, a senior visiting fellow at the CAS, although I think mm. it's been renamed now, the CAS. We're, we're in the middle, we're supposed to say formally CAS right now. Formally CAS. It's dead trendy, school. isn't it? I mean, you know. Yes, everything's, going to, everything's <laughs> going to be formally soon, but we won't go down that path. Um, presumably, you still think business rules, because uh, it was a kind of very fierce satire on corporate bollocks basically and the mm. proliferation of it mm. at, at vast expense um, to no great end or rather to negative end at uh, business schools around the world presumably you think some business schools serve uh, a good purpose yes i do i had two two big targets that i wanted to 
really machine gun <laughs> um, uh, in MBA. And MBA um, was short for uh, why is so much the world managed by assholes? And yeah. um, the two big targets were um, villainous fat cats themselves, egregiously odious personalities <laughs> with a lot of business mm. power, you know, like the recently departed chair of KPMG, et cetera, et cetera, mm. and, and others of that guilt. So that was one villain category. But my villain category in relation to business schools um, was not that business schools do no good. My analogy, um, the analogy I like to make about business schools is to compare them to the automobile. The modern business school and the automobile were both invented around the same time in the you know, late 19th century, mm -hmm. and both went on to completely transform our world and both do important good things i mean anyone i mean i'm sure with your with your sheep you need a car mm, <laughs> um and and all sorts of things like that but the difference is that over the years we have learned with the automobile that as well as the good stuff they put out pollution that pollution seriously kills and we need to seriously do things about it what, as a society, we haven't much noticed is what is the pollution of the mind? What is the pollution of our relationships with each other? What is the pollution of our working lives that business schools, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes quite deliberately, have put into the world? And how can we keep the good bits? You know, that's with the car. How can we keep the good bits? Mm. Mm. But take seriously, there's really serious damage being done here. It's very interesting. I think, you see, I think journalists are very cushioned from the bollocks because the journalists, the world of journalism has, you know, it has plenty of stresses and nastinesses of its own. But generally speaking, there's not a lot of corporate bollocks. You know, everybody has a paper to produce every day. You're entirely focused on doing that. It happens 364 days a year. Right. And obviously now, all not more than that, because it's constant rolling 24-7, 365 day a year operation online. So I, on the rare occasions I make forays into the business world and come across it, I'm kind of, you know, bemused and shocked, but, but I don't have to deal with it very much. So I have to say that when you move out of the journalism world and you want to do and you do things in other worlds, particularly in, in the business world, and you're, you're told you have to have a LinkedIn profile that the robots will recognise with all these buzzwords. And you think, well, if I do that, then as a writer, I'm going to destroy all my credentials in you know 500 words because uh, it's not going to sound anything like me. Mm -hmm. um, how much do you think that sort of corporate ethos has poisoned the world? Because, for, for example, under... I mean, God, new, new Labour now seems to me like, you know, a kind of paradise compared with what we have now. But there was this sense of creeping privatisation that I, I'm not entirely against. I think, you know, some of it was good, some of it less good. But certainly it meant that the public sector saw perhaps more of that, um, well, and under Thatcher, obviously, but more of that uh, kind of business ethos than before. There's, I mean, so many things pop, pop to mind, Christina, so you probably need to channel me a bit. I mean, one thing, um, you know, first, first of all, there's the private public thing going on in, the, uh, in there. Um, and I really think that um, business does and can do a lot of good um, mm. uh, in the world. Um, but the, the almost Orwellian kind of 
private sector good, public sector bad that we yeah. have seen. And we've seen it at the cost of so many lives in this country, in the pandemic, mm. you know, with test and trace and, 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 you know, basically do anything, you know, throw money at anyone who once had dinner mm. with someone connected with the Tory party mm. um, who has never actually done, but if they're in the private sector and if they're connected with the Tory party, then throw hundreds of millions mm. at them. So that kind of, I'd call it, you know, that animal farm like um, private sector good, public sector bad, I deeply deplore and, and find quite cancerous. But business can do some great things and we see some of that in some aspects of the vaccine, um, you know, rollout yes, and, and yes. in other stuff. But if we talk about the kind of the, you know, the elites, then what I, in my latest book, I mean, I, mean, I in, in, both MBA and then the novel I, I wrote after that, um, I enjoyed and and at least some readers enjoyed um, and hopefully there was some purpose in in naming villains because as you say, not everyone gets close enough to see that there really are villains and I've been lucky enough to have mm. you know what you might call a backstage pass you know to a range of um, elite decision making places um, in the private and in the public sector over the last. 30 years um and having had that privilege um you know mba was part about saying yeah i think we ought to stand up and say that we have more than our fair share of actual villains and deeply selfish thugs um in positions of power and perhaps we want to do something about that but in my latest book what i wanted to do in called elite i wanted to go beyond that because there is a problem with stopping short at the naming of villains or types of villain, because it slightly obscures whether there's something else going on that's rather more pervasive, that may be rather more powerful, might be a bit structural, might even involve us, who think maybe we're not connected. So to use an example, um, we're all, you know, how many weeks are we away in, in kind of the last year's time from that moment when Dominic Cummings went for his eye test, um, I don't know uh, well, when it was, the it was. It was not. It was around now, actually, because uh, this time last year, because it wasn't revealed till the end of May. But it happened. They everybody got uh, COVID at around the same time, which was mm. around the end of March. So I'm kind of in a place of saying, well, let's do ourselves an eye test and notice that it isn't just individual villains. So Dominic Cummings goes and does this thing and we are all sickened by the entitlement mentality the the sort of teflon immunity of well of course i can do this and no one's you know no one's you know no one's going to touch me and it and it sickens us and there's a, a chapter in my current book where i look at kind of you know that exact thing and i mentioned dominic cummings but i deliberately didn't want to use him as the main example because when we use him as the main example, it's too easy to go into villain mode and think it's because he's some specially nasty shit. Mm. He probably is. I don't know. Never met him. But I think he's done enough to prove to me he's a specially nasty shit. But there's something more. So the example I use in the book is from the most boring types of people you could find. As a backroom civil servant, civil servant from 10 years ago, Sir John Bourne, who became controller and auditor general in charge of the dullest of things, auditing and stopping wasteful spending. And I give an example which seems to me equally egregious, 
um, of how he was found to have, um, for many years, taken his wife first class at the taxpayer's expense on all sorts of hobnobbing with other public sector auditor uh, conferences. The authorities and the tax authorities, when they discovered it, um, decided that this was not legitimate, the travel of his wife was not a legitimate business expense. She wasn't needed for any of these uh, functions. So they gave Sir John Bourne, still in his job, of course, a permanent secretary rank job, a job with special protection in our constitution, the controller and auditor general, from being removed, um, handed him a bill for unpaid taxes and penalties, I think over £100,000. Um, and guess who ended up paying that bill? The taxpayer. You and I. He just handed it in and said, oh, that's another expense I've got to pay because mm -hmm. my activities were entirely legitimate. The entitled same, and there's an interview with him in which he voices all that. That's same entitlementism. But if we see that it affects someone who's really pretty grey, yeah. pretty dull, pretty yeah. not evil, mm. pretty not Dominic Cummings, the sort of person that Dominic Cummings rants and screams about, if we see that it affects someone like that, then that helps us perhaps to do our own eyesight test and say there's something else to notice here that isn't just villains, although we should call out villains mm. um, when we see them. Exactly. Well, I, and I, I loved Elite's uh, subtitle um, is uh, How to Rise. Uh, remind me, How to Rise to the Top Without Can Losing Your Soul. Can you rise to the top, without, you rise losing to the top without losing your soul? Yeah. So essentially, it's about the ethics of uh, meritoc meritocracies or supposed meritocracies of business, well, of, of, of power, actually. And um, in the book, you, that there are people you call the muggle crust, the tier beneath the elite class in a meritocracy, which you call the wizards. Now, I'm probably the only person in the world who hasn't read the Harry Potter books, but I thought your, I thought your naming of those different tribes worked, worked brilliantly. And you say in the book, I am much more muggle crust than wizard. The book yes. certainly feels written from the heart. Was there a particular thing that made you realise you had to write it? Maybe two stages to that. Maybe two stages to that. There is a particular thing um, that happened to me 15, 16 years ago um, on the streets of Mumbai. So I'll tell that story. But that, 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 if you like, that sends me off on a quest. And, and part of the relevance of Harry Potter is it's a quest for, you know, it's a quest to discover one's own true identity, if you like. Mm. Um, By the way, I've just, I've just reviewed the new Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson uses vast amounts of uh, Harry Potterage in it as well. And then I thought, oh, God, I wish I had read these books, but I haven't. <laughs> right. Well, OK. We'll have to think where we go with that. But, um, yeah, so, so incident one that sets me off on the quest was I have, was in the middle of a five-day um, learning trip organized by a great social change organization called Leaders Quest um, that um, took a bunch of mainly corporate execs and similar types um, to BRICS countries, as they were then called, Brazil, mm. Russia, India, China, South Africa. Um, and I went on one to Mumbai and Bangalore. And we the idea was that you would meet in small groups, uh, big cheese business leaders, small entrepreneurial business uh, leaders, but also through the good offices of, of local NGOs, have learning encounters, mutual learning encounters. People 
non-fat cats living in those countries, struggling with the issues um, in their lives of those countries. And one particular morning, about five of us had chosen the option to go and meet um, group of groups of construction workers sleeping on the streets of Mumbai. And we, with an interpreter from the local NGO, we piled into a small van, about half a dozen of us, got to the first location on a street corner in Mumbai, about, I don't know, quarter to eight also in the morning, already getting quite warm. There were five white plastic chairs. You know those white plastic chairs, Christina, that are everywhere in the world and they're identical? Yeah. Anyway, those five white plastic chairs were sitting there with a crowd of people around and we sat down and we were introduced to a bunch of construction workers sleeping on the street. Many of them were women. A few of them um, had infants um, they were carrying on their backs or their fronts. Uh, these were wiry, strong women and some men um, hired by the day who would climb bamboo scaffolding to build the buildings. I don't know how high the bamboo scaffolding goes, but in Asia it goes pretty high. Um, you know, to build the buildings that the fat cats would get to make their money in. And we had an exchange which you could boil down to them politely asking us, what are you doing here? And us politely asking them, what are you doing here? And building a conversation from that. And then we basically repeated that about three times during the morning. The NGO took us to another place and another place. Um, and what we became aware of is that by the time we'd done the third one at around 10 o'clock, and it was then quite hot, was that the workers that we were then meeting um, were much less likely to get work for the day um, if they weren't hired mm. first thing. And not getting work for the day would mean no money for that day. And I just came away from that um, trip thinking that, honestly, I live in a world and I'm content to play my part in a world which expects so many billion people, billions of people, to cope with levels of insecurity which are just beyond my imagining. That if I, with so many advantages, financial, social capital, health, where I live, everything. Um, if I couldn't tear myself away from the security, which is quite real, um, as I know you know, Christina, of mm. a monthly, mm. reliable monthly well, I salary. I, so I know, I but I know, like, I know you remember it. <laughs> um, then I just should be taken out and shot. So that kind of just knocked, mm. you know, that kind of knocked me off on a quest. But on to crystallizing and that the, without that quest of, of trying to find a, a lot of strands of what might be not quite right in our understanding of our society ourselves ambition what success is those types of question I wouldn't have had the raw material to write the book mm. but I think then the incident the thing that um, yeah there was an incident which then the book was actually born during a, a one-hour uh, during in August on a walk um, three, two and a half years ago in France. Uh, Trish and I try when we can uh, to go and have three weeks in France. We don't own a place, just rent. Um, and I go for a walk. And this, I turned 60 that year, and a bit of mortality was on my mind. And all my life up to that point, I had not seen how it would be possible to write something that you might call or that might resemble a business success, a slim business mm. success book. Because most mm. of those things 
um, they're snake oil. They make promises mm, which yeah. are untrue. Yeah. They say, read this and you can become a CEO. And I mm. had no wish to be any part of that mm. um, problem. And the other boulder in my path was that the more I'd grown as a coach and the more I'd felt privileged to play some catalytic part in changes in coaches' lives which they welcomed, the more I thought, well, if I am doing any good like that, it, it, it is through relationship in a book. Mm. A book may be a wonderful thing, but it's not a relationship. And and I really struggled with the ethics of, you know, what would be the point of putting something out there with which gave no possibility of change? So right up until then, that August, two and a half years ago, I thought, well, it'd be a good thing, Douglas, if you wrote a slim business success book, if you apparently know, claim to know, make money out of claiming to know things about how things work up there. But there were two boulders just blocked the path. I couldn't see how I could write a book that would do that. And I went for that walk for one hour. I can remember it quite vividly. And kind of turning 60 came into it as well. And I had a bit of self-conversation where I literally said to myself, well, Douglas, if you're ever going to write it, it's going to be now. So why don't we just try a little coaching gimmick? Um, the coaching gimmick is I say to myself, well, Douglas, you have to imagine a man comes into the room with a gun in his hand and says, Douglas, you've got no choice but spend the next three months writing a slim business success book. Which book are you going to write? And during that hour, the two boulders shifted. Now, I think it's for you to say, not me, Christina, whether I've ended up falling into either of those two pitfalls. So one would be making promises to people that can't. Definitely that not. Fulfilled. Definitely not. And the other is writing something that that isn't in the least empowering or useful. It's just a, a painting of a bleak picture, but with no possibility of change or hope. I hope. No, I, I think that. it's a very, very profound and uh, deep book about what it means to seek power to to wield power about how the whole thing works I mean it is I think um in a sense it's probably for those who've wanted to climb a corporate ladder there's probably a certain sense of catharsis because there are the the, the kind of perhaps the most pernicious lie and it's the lie that uh, you you say that the the elite, the wizards, um, spread and repeat. And when they are asked to give talks, uh, you know, TED-type talks, they, uh, you, you have a, let me see if I can find the uh, quote, you say, oh, here we are, thank you so much for that moving story about learning to work hard and to believe that anything is possible. Leadership by TED talk, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I did hear a panel at, I think, the University of Westminster Business School um, a few years ago when some highly, highly privileged people who had been to unbelievably expensive elite, I don't know if they were business schools, but uh, educational institutions in the US essentially said that very thing. And I was just gobsmacked, actually. But um, but you, you're right, the magic works so that everybody believes it. And I think it's 
helpful to people to realize no there is actually a, a real ceiling there you know the the yeah. crust between the muggle crust the execs who work unbelievably hard burn themselves out for whom nothing is ever enough who have long cvs who get up at the crack of dawn who are transparent who take responsibility and the wizard class who somehow get there because they know the right people and they think that if they don't know you you're probably not very talented and there's a hefty element of charisma you have short cvs you all the um principles that are important in the muggle crust which are about working hard and taking responsibility and handling complexity are wiped away and then it becomes about you know simple rules like move fast and break things or, or whatever else it might be you know, I think there's a, an example which I think um, I think is, is just very in front of our eyes at the moment um, is Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. Yes, exactly. Um, and um, I, I listened to a great Tortoise Media um, uh, profile by a couple of women journalists. I think it was Gabby Hinsliff and uh, about Keir and his mm. you know his backstory. And um, in terms of these concepts of Muggles and Muggle Crust and and, and Wizard. So the story I would tell around this to bring it to like look, Boris is clearly a, a, a wizard. Mm. I mean, he that doesn't the he's archetypal. Not, he's, the he archetypal. is not he's not a particularly good one. No. But um, in any sense of that word, good. But there he is. Um, and here's Keir. And I think the key that I would say in terms of understanding the situation we're in there and what Muggle Crust adds to the picture is it's important to understand that two important groups of Muggle Crust have been more or less eroded and removed over the last 5, 10, 15 years. So one group around the Prime Minister is the senior civil service. Yes. Now that, over something like a 20-year period, um, the permanent secretaries, the, the, all of that, that muggle crust, um, which was part of our constitutional checks and balances, by governments of more than one party, has been eroded and eroded and eroded, eroded to the point where we have these incredible financial horrors going on, you know, we've seen in COVID, and permanent secretaries who, you know, well, we had six get sacked, but, you mm. know, apart from, you know, powerless. So that muggle crust check on the prime minister's gone. But mm. the other, on a Tory prime minister like Boris, was what you might call the muggle crust within what used to be, you know, the Tory parliamentary party. Yes. A group of uh, MPs, uh, long-standing Conservative MPs, often with knighthoods, um, who, you know, one may or may not have agreed with certain of their political views, but but they there were some quite deeply responsible things, as they saw it, for which they stood. Um, and, of course, you know, Brexit and all of that blew them away. So here we have, and I think us, the story, in some ways the story of public leadership in Britain right now um, is what I call wizards running amok, a cabinet of wizards, mostly not particularly good ones, mm. running amok without these checks and balances in place. And so here comes along Keir, who grows up as a muggle and becomes absolute classic muggle crust, you know, director of public prosecutions, um, thrown into combat with Boris, where these two important sets of checks and balances that should be there in Whitehall and in the Tory reporter party aren't there. Mm. And so with that vacuum, it's very tempting and in a sense... It was a job that someone needed to do and that Keir has chosen to do for the first year, you know, the last year we've seen him operating, trying to hold the Prime Minister to account in that very muggle way for all his many failings. 
And that's a job that should be being done, but it should be being done by some other people. Those other people are not there anymore. Mm. And so in a way, Keir has to somehow move from saying, okay, that job needs to be done, but perhaps no longer by me. I need to become someone that more people in Britain, more wizard-like, can believe is, is inspirational um, and not just the super on top of it um, muggle. Mm, I think that's absolutely right. And to add to the dismantling of the civil service, the whole public appointment uh, scene has changed. Oh. You know, I was strongly encouraged to apply for public appointment some years ago, but I know there is literally no point in applying now because I criticise the government frequently on Sky and uh, social media and one isn't allowed to. Dissent has been... Uh, you know, deemed a reason, sort of, you know, constructive criticism or whatever you want to call it is literally no longer permitted. So that is another check and balance that has been removed. But I think there's a, I'd like to think that, well, there's certainly the possibility of hope. I can't be rash and say that there's definitely hope. Um, I spent some time a few weeks ago reading Orlando Fiji's book about the Crimean War, mm -hmm. um, uh, not because I'm a you know, long historian, but you know, my first job, Christina, was, as, you know, as a 21-year-old, was as a young civil servant, mm. um, very junior muggle in that civil service world. And I was taught about the Northcote Trevelyan Report and where the principle of appointment on merit, meritocracy, where it came from. And it came from the Northcote Trevelyan report. It came from the Crimean War. Crimean War, probably in some ways, really Britain's Vietnam. This mm. this war in a far-off place fought for the first time with journalistic reporting, where, where things were run by the chumocracy. There wasn't appointment on merit. And the British public, even though we technically won the war, um, the British public was sufficiently angry at how many lives had been lost through hopeless military organization because of people being in jobs who didn't have the competence to do them, but were the chums or the second or third sons or someone, mm. you know, of someone rather. Um, and they actually, we actually, our, our British predecessors said, enough, we're not having it. And uh, that led to things like the Northcote Trevelyan Report and the creation of some of those structures. And I would love to think, um, and I think it's possible, if we will to live in that country, that we'll say we're, we, we're just not, you know, this whole argument going on about a public inquiry, there is a place we can go. And the thing that really, that wasn't expecting when I read that history, that really relates to the theme of elites, is because in a way what you could say elites is about, is about a misallocation of respect yes. in society. Yes. How... We, we, we know lots of things about misallocation of wealth, misallocation of opportunity, misallocation of education and health, housing, long and vital list. But really, my book turns out to be about kind of the misallocation of respect. How, it, how does it happen that some of us who are moderately high up and others who are just, you know, the people who we clap on Thursday, used to clap on Thursday evening, how do we all end up being complicit in giving away bits of respect to people who already have far too much and don't really deserve any more. And that's the riddle that the book, mm. um, you know, tries to unpack. 
Now, to, to go back to the, the kind of, you know, elites at board level, at, at one point when you were involved in FTSE 100 board recruit, recruitment, mm. you say that you concluded that the task the chair had engaged us to do was to discover relevantly skilled candidates whom he had met at dinner but forgotten, yes. <laughs> which is a slightly depressing assessment of um, how board recruitment works. But and it, let's let's face it, there has been progress. For example, there are, I think, you know, now a third um, of you know yes there are women on on boards and so on which clearly is progress but that is an unbelievably uh depressing assessment and one i'm sure you didn't make lightly because you worked in that field for a long time can you do you think can you say a bit about you know where you are in relation to that now whether you think progress is being made yeah so you know I, i i really celebrate that we have made um we have made valuable um, progress. And I go back to my theme um, about wanting to look beyond individual villains. So, mm-hmm. so I came to that conclusion quite reluctantly, but it was the only way I could make sense of how this individual, um, who is, you know, this individual is not one of the kinds of people I portray as a villain in my first novel, MBA. This is what you'd call a reasonably good senior corporate leader. Um, so you're right. I didn't come to that conclusion lightly. So what I theorise in elites is that actually this comes with the job, that an unspoken part of being an elite, I don't just mean the elite of a country, but even mm. in the elite of any particular activity, whether you realise it or not, um, is to be part of a web of connection um, in which um, you may directly know a lot of people, but also it can be connection at one remove um, someone pops into view and you know that you could find out about them if you wanted to. You know that there's someone you could message or pick up the phone to mm. who would know them. Mm. Um, and, and you may not feel the need to do so, but but it's what I call a stranger-free environment. And what I'm arguing is that actually this isn't because people are selfish or evil. It's just something quite ordinarily human that makes that happen. Now, what can we do about it? So I d- there were times, just a you know, lighten the sense of progress, where as I dimly came to perceive that this was what was going on and it wasn't being done for, you know, for evil reasons. So rather than just throw my toys out of my pram, you know, if I was, while I was a headhunter, if I was going to work with that, well, how could I help change it? We put, I, put, I can remember instances where I put a lot of effort into working with someone once they'd got onto the shortlist um, to really map out who might be individuals you know, a bit sort of like super LinkedIn. Who might be individuals who knew them mm. that the chair of the nominations committee might know? Mm. Um, and to explain that th- this isn't because the, the appointment system is corrupt, but we actually have to provide, if we can provide that reassurance, the person will just look at your merits in a much more straightforward ways. But that was that was slow. And, and in elites, I'm saying there are some things we need to do to move beyond where we are now mm. so one of the things that i think goes wrong is so when i'm saying when you when you reach that senior level very senior level and you're there for a period of time it's kind of an institutionalized more structural form of hubris really um but you you get used to the idea that practically everyone who's anyone and who's really ex- sufficiently excellently good to be the sort of person that you ought to be wasting your your time with is is in that sort of stranger free circle of um, knowledge and one of the main things we need to do is to get people to realize that actually doing these top jobs is a job you do 
for society. It's not some sort of divine status that you were just born brilliant. And mm. so a simple thing, I suggest, is that we already have on boards as part of good governance that you know, no non-exec should, should stay on an individual board uh, you know, for more than a certain number of years. So mm. I think if you stay on more than nine years on an individual board, you're no longer considered to be independent um, of the executive. But I suggest that, you know, what about if we had a limit that said, um, spe thinking specifically of FTSE 100 and equivalent caliber boards, which is a pretty high level, as you know, Christina. I mean, these are sorts of things that pay um, upwards of 50,000 a year mm. for, a, you know, a dozen meetings. Mm. Um, um, what do we have to say? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm trying to help you here, Christine. Um, I was, would like to put up for consideration the idea that actually we say, fine, these people are not villains, but how about a limit that said no individual should serve more than 20 years in total on boards of that calibre? And, and when some of them sit on three at once, I'm counting three, you know, I've got the counter going. Yes three times yeah. because actually if you can't in 20 years of board service at that level you know make your great contribution your great leadership contribution then what are you doing there in the first place mm. and secondly then and then it would also make them choosier about which boards they went on and more determined to make a difference and thirdly they would know from the beginning and we'd all know it's a job you finish you make way for other people. And by the way, we don't need to burst into tears and think that the world will lose all the great expertise of Sir Fred Smith and Sir Barney Jones or whatever, mm -hmm. because as you and I know, they'll pop up as consultancies and directors of satellite things and people will be paying them 100,000 a year for breathing. Mm -hmm. You know, we will not lose their expertise. But actually, not just to create more spaces for you to get appointed, Christina, but, but not just that, but to break the idea that, um, well, to, just to be clearer, that these roles are jobs. They come with certain privileges. They come with certain opportunities. They come with certain perils. But we can minimise the perils as well as get more mobility um, by saying, you know, like a deep-sea diver, there's a limit to how much you should time you should spend them. Mm. You tell a, a truly shocking story in the book, which I imagine was one of the uh, triggers for you leaving your role as a headhunter, which is um, in the, I think it was a cabinet office appointment mm. where uh, the bigwigs in the room had, it had been um, boiled down to a choice between two equally good candidates, a white yep. man and a black woman. And yep. the um, the big cheeses decided it had better go to the white man because um, if it uh, if it goes to the black woman, it will look as if it's a politically correct decision. Yes. Now, obviously, this was some years ago, yes. uh, and you were deeply shocked and felt complicit, and did later manage to get the black woman a, either a similar role or, yes. or a, you know, something you know sort of of similar standing. Do you think? Of course, you can't say it wouldn't happen now because you know these things do happen, but you're mixed race, your mother was Chinese, your father was English. You will have experienced racism as anybody does who has non-white mm. skin. Um, given what happened in the last year with Black Lives Matter and lots of corporates are certainly ostensibly, make, well, certainly making noises about tackling it. Do you think there is progress now? I'd like to think that, well, let's avoid that 
evasion. I do believe that um, in terms of top-level um, corporate roles and I would say public and governmental ones, if one could somehow remove the taint of the, you know, the taint of the Tory party, you know, mm -hmm. uh, besmirching that, that, that we're in a better place on, um, on racism there if one can be one of the highly privileged, <laughs> themselves highly privileged individuals, um, you know, who've got what it takes to get onto the shortlist. Mm -hmm. so, so the exact thing that happened there and was shocking um, I mean, it was a bunch of permanent secretaries, and I knew that they were actually pretty good and ethical people, and that's part of the whole point of mm. the, you know, the conundrum of the thing. Mm. And also, let's just own up, and and I try and own up in the book and say, so I was then complicit in lying to the individuals concerned. This was then my job as a headhunter to go mm. and speak to the individuals concerned, tell them what the panel decided mm. and why they decided, yeah. and so on and no, so no, forth. So let's not. Let me not dodge that. But what I am concerned, so, so that exact thing is probably not, um, it's probably moved forward. It's probably a lot better. But, I mean, then look at the Tory party. It keeps trying to parade non-white Tories um, in front of us. But there's massive problems um, for black people and non-white people generally um, to get through the glass ceiling, to, you know, to become a wizard, to become considered worthy to be on a shortlist for, you know, mm. for such a thing. Um, and I think in many, in many other ways, um, there, I'm frustrated, deeply frustrated with the kind of corporate response, you know, to Black Lives Matter and so on. I, um, I've got a piece coming out any day now on a, on a diversity website, because we're coming up in a couple of months to the anniversary, the tragic anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. And um, my attention was caught on the 31st of December, because you probably saw the Times ran an obituary, uh, two-thirds of a page obituary on George Floyd on the 31st of December. And they began it by saying, um, you know, in common with a range of other newspapers, we didn't run an obituary at the time, but now we think we want to. And they talked about his his life, his degree of athletic uh, prowess, his early jobs, being a rapper, his jail time, his moving to another part of the country uh, with his Bible by his bed to try and help uh, other young black men not go down some of the paths. And then, of course, we get to how he was killed. And I read that, and at first I thought, mm, well, good for you. I mean, you know, the Times well done. Then I thought, no, no, something about this isn't really ringing right for me. And the more I thought about it, and I thought about the 31st of December, and the more about what this piece was really saying, to me, it was too much saying, it wasn't saying black lives matter. It was saying some black deaths that you've heard about matter. And there was no sense coming from the Times of any sense of reflection on what it is they report on and what they judge newsworthy or what they might cover in the future. So I think we've got a, a hell of a long way to go before mm. really Black Lives Matter, or as I, you know, ordinary lives matter. Mm. Now you you you've said you at some point well when you I think you said when you were young you were you know you had the kind of traditional ambitions about success and acknowledgement of achievement and so on and 
I think because you started off in the civil service, there there is a kind of fairly natural career ladder. My father was a civil servant as well, and without right. if you were good and without much self promotion, it was possible to kind of you know rise yeah. that you know climb that ladder without actually pushing yourself forward all that much. The rest of the world is rather less like that, which um, my parents certainly never grasped. <laughs> and um, yes. you know the idea of self promotion, you know, we we were brought up to believe that was really you know not the done thing at all um hard to get anywhere now if you don't put yourself forward here's a quote you said most of my adult life i've sought success thinking it was some elusive cocktail of money achievement power or praise now you did become deputy chairman of um uh, of a major recruitment yeah. uh, headhunters which you know, most people regard as regard as you know wizard level or pretty near wizard yep. level and as you said you were chair of the refugee council for some years which you know in that field you were absolutely a wizard was there a point when you thought wizardry, as in your interpretation, which you clearly didn't feel you reached in the corporate world, is not for me? And if so, what was that point? I think that um, the Mumbai event was was part of a nexus of things around then, perhaps mm. also complicated by my, my mother um, being knocked down and killed in a, mm. a car accident Terrible. in um, in Hong Kong, and other things went on, but but around there because I think you could say that um, when I left when I took the decision um, to leave headhunting um, which was what that encounter with those women on on the pavements of Mumbai prompted uh, a few months later um, as you say I was in a you know I was by my most standards I was in a pretty near wizardy you mm. know sort of role um, and if I had, I realised that, you know, that, that opportunity, you know, I wouldn't be in such an advantageous position if climbing was what I wanted to do, probably again. Um, and so I could have lived another life where I tried um, to get on boards or to get noticed in other ways and so on and so forth. Um, and instead, I chose to go away and study a doctorate and go and explore what it is that people might want me to do that I might find really fulfilling to do, which turned out to be coaching, which is a backroom, um, a backroom activity, although one with, with incredible, um, you know, rewards. So I think probably there, you know, that's what I'd point to. Mm. Yeah. So to bring a little bit of hope into the picture for those in the Muggle Crust who have not entirely given up their dreams of wizardry what can you summarize the mindset that will help them break into wizardry if they want to without losing their soul i'm saying i mean first of all they are the hidden heroes for whom above all else i've written this book and the book offers a chance to see the world that they are already in, in a way that most people have found who've, who've read it or have had the chance to coach, um, has been, as you said, cathartic was the word. Mm. Um, they realised that they already knew bits of this, but now the bits come together and make a clear picture. And the first and most important thing is, to, is that, that what flows from seeing the world differently is a sense of 
I have achieved more than I thought. I was probably operating with a mental model that said I had done pretty well, maybe much better than I ever dreamed when I was at school or my parents imagined. That's quite a common story. But here I am and I've got a bronze medal and maybe that's as high as I'm going to go. The changed picture which I'm trying to offer and to offer reasons for it says, no, 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 no. First of all, let's question that. Um, you're in a structure that makes it look as though you've got a bronze medal. Yes. But I'm reconstructing that structure for you <laughs> and suggesting it's quite possible. I'm not guaranteeing it. I'm not going to turn to one of those snake oil business books that says you're flawless or something. It's quite possible that you are amongst the best in your organization at the things that you really care about, that you have got the gold medal. So first of all, if you look at the world with those different eyes, realistic eyes, and see that, then allow yourself some congratulation. Allow yourself some respite. Allow yourself some joy for what you have already achieved, never mind what you need to decide you know, mm. you know, now. And then look again at the question of up or not. And maybe, um, and certainly for those with a background like mine, which are a source of you know, well-educated middle class, biracial, but well-educated middle-class background, um, kind of expected to try for the top in whatever way and, and to get there, if I could. But com what comes with that, what you find you've breathed in with that, is a little voice in your head that says, if you don't get the gold medal, you know, maybe you're a bit of a failure. Mm. It's to say, actually, that's not right. I mean, not only may I already have got the gold medal, but that whole line of thinking has been taken in by a magic show, which I don't necessarily want yeah. to pursue. And I want to make some choices about here I am in the muggle crust. Do I want to go up? Do I want to discover that I've actually got more power and satisfaction in this role than I may have thought? Do I want to go off and do something else with, you know, with, you know, with my life? Um, and so I would love my hidden heroes to take away from that book without needing to move an inch from where they are, um, a sense of quite likely greater achievement and possibly greater power in relation and, and more refined choice about what they want to do with the future. The, the flip side of that is that the book was also written for the many people in those situations who have got vertigo about how high they've already climbed absolutely don't believe that they could be a wizard, absolutely don't believe the wizards would have them, and absolutely don't believe they would enjoy being a wizard if they ever got the opportunity. And to them, I'm wanting to say, there's no musts in this. It's not that you must do this or must do that. That's not what coaches do. But let me just offer you a different picture of the world. And in that different picture of the world, just consider the possibility that maybe what you've been taught to believe you wouldn't enjoy Maybe that's not right. Do you want to give it a try, is what it boils down to. Mm. A question to ask for yourself, for your happiness, for your own life, with no predetermined answer. But with all of us realising that if it's only the ambitious and entitled shits who get to be wizards, the rest of us have to live with the consequences of that for the running of our societies and our businesses and our professions and our other activities. I don't think we can find a better note to end on than that. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, Douglas. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me, Christina. Really, really enjoyed and appreciated it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at QueenChristina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.